Good morning. That was absolutely beautiful. Ah, today's reading is from Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 5, and then Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 13. Walk in love. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. 6, 10 to 13, the whole armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. So, uh, some people in BC recently, I think it was just within the last week or so, won $27 million. They're not here this morning. Or if they have, they haven't told me about it. So, I guess they went to get their giant check, and they have to do a little press thing, you know, or talk to the cameras and the people. And they'd already made some purchases. What did they do? Well, they bought a truck. They had always dreamed, I don't know any numbers of cars or models, or it's one of my terrible weaknesses. I think it was called, they said, we always dreamed of an F-1350. Is that right? Something like that. Anyway, somebody say it right. A big truck. They had dreamed of that. I clearly haven't. But anyway... And so they bought one of those big trucks. And then they were asked, what are your plans next? And they said, well, we'd like a sports car. And I thought, they must not be that young, because is that term used anymore, sports car? Sounds so 70s to me, but anyway. And so they said, we're going to go buy a sports car. Now, I think maybe if they have um, experience of the Christian faith, maybe they're just not letting their left hand know what their right hand is doing. You know what I mean? Maybe they're using some of the money for something great. Not that buying cars for yourself isn't. Imagine your dream life. Would $27 million million do it? I would have, I would get, I would acquire. This is my dream blank. Put in the word. It's like we need to offer an apology to one another. 
we've been complicit in this. Complicit that the good life can be achieved with a $27 million check and acquiring things. We have done a terrible thing setting this up as a dream life and participating in the illusion. If only we had as much as the person beside us. It can happen even in a church like this, even in a small church. You can think, if I just had what the other people over there had, then my life would be worry-free. Come to me. I, don't, I won't disclose any secrets, but I'll tell you, that's not the case. The book of Ephesians we've been going through, a life worthy of the call. That's chapters 4, 5, and 6. Live a life worthy of the call that you've received, because remember, we gave the book this structure in terms of its, how it's written. The letter to, these, to this church in Ephesus, and the first three chapters build up. Here's what you are to know about God. Their theological presentations and arguments. Theology. Talk about God. So you are to know these things. And the peak, of course, as we've been saying over and over over these number of weeks, is in chapter 3. My prayer, I kneel before the Father and pray that you would know that which is unknowable. Fantastic. And this is what is unknowable. Knowledge that passes any kind of understanding. I pray that you would know this. The love of God, the depth and the height and the width and the length of the love of God. And then the rest of the book, chapters 4, 5, and 6, which we're blitzing through quickly and finishing today. We're doing a bit of 4 and 5 and 6 today. You need to go study it and read it on your own. I just want to correct a couple of misconceptions in how it's used. The rest of the book is saying, in light of this love of God, then how are you then to live? What will your life look like if you've encountered this love of God? That's simple. So the image of a mountain, the theological argument is that all things, chapter 1, all things will be united in Christ. In other words, history is headed somewhere and it's not hopeless. What does it mean that Christ is victorious? What does it mean that He has the keys to hell? In Christian understanding before, the, the emphasis was on the fact that He defeated hell. And now sometimes we think, well, He's kind of defeated but all things will be united in Christ. I'm, I'm asking you to pray about what that might mean. And then secondly, this best knowledge of all, the knowledge that is beyond knowing, to know the love of God. So then how to live. I will, and I think if you have listened through weeks and months and years, uh, you're aware when you're listening to particular musicians or bands, and sometimes you can have one song in your head and then you realize it switches to another song of the same band. And then you go, hey, wait a minute, do all their songs sound the same? And sometimes you're like, well, they kind of do. And you have to think, how do you sound the same to the people you're talking to? Because sometimes you do. You sound the same chords and tones and, you know, all the things that you care about. And, you know, I might not be that intelligent, but I'm intelligent enough to know that I have some of the same songs over and over again. And one of them is to warn you against what I call and others call moralism. Morality is good. You know what morality is, right? Living a good life. Moralism is terrible. Mixing up morality as if it were a worldview or some kind of religious system. Morality helps you to examine yourself. What kinds of decisions should I be making? How should I live? 
How am I to treat others? Moralism leads you to judge others and creates a distance between you and them. Religions, I think virtually all religions, but I guess there's some worldviews and religious systems that don't have this temptation, but most of the religions that we would think about, including Christianity, always have this temptation towards moralism. And I would argue it has torn apart more families and done greater damage and prevented us from seeing God's love more than just about anything else. The trouble is that morality is good. And so if you speak against moralism, people can say, be careful, be careful, be careful. Do you think people should be able to do whatever they want? I'm not talking about that. One of the things that we should be known for as Christians, I mean, it makes sense. Just read the Gospels and look at the life of Jesus Christ. One of the things that we should be known for as Christians, of course, they says they'll know you're Christians by the love you have for one another. But when you listen to the words of our Lord, we should be known for the fact that we should be among the least judgmental people anywhere. And how many times have you heard in popular culture or in conversation with friends, you know what really bothers me about Christians? They're just not judgmental enough. Let's aim for that. They don't judge anybody. We go from God's love to how to live. One of the things I challenge people with is I say, read the Gospels, the four Gospels, and find five to ten places where Jesus takes a moral stance. A stance on a moral issue. He's always battling the Pharisees who are trying to correct others. He says, I've come, and I have not come to abolish even a scratch of the law, so it's not like he's anti-morality and anti-law. But just read the Gospels. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. Find me five to ten places. And what everybody says is, well, there's the woman caught in adultery. Read that story. See, see who he's standing against. Those Christians... I can't stand them. They just don't judge anybody. The new life. When you go to Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. Oh, I've got to show you that. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is going to tell us, if it isn't moralism, then what is the new life in Christ? If it isn't just about being a better person, though being a good person is good, what does life in Christ look like after encountering God's love? the love of Jesus Christ. And what Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is going to do and title it and describe it as is the new life. Here's what your new life is going to look like. And you can see by some of the passages that we read this morning, it would be easy then to take those descriptions and fall back into a moralism, but that's what I want to warn you against. If we were to say, and this is almost a cartoonish commercial I'm about to show you, But if we were to say, what's the good life or what should we aim for in this world to, in a non-religious way, you might see an ad like this. My apologies in advance. Oh, we need the sound. So, I'll go back. Six p.m. No excuses. 
Be fast. Be focused. Be inspiring. Be in four places at once. Be responsible. Be a role model. Be precise. Oh, and be on time. Not bad. Because life is a race. The AMG GT four-door coupe. AMG driving. Because life is a race. I, you know, I was thinking about that and praying about that, and thinking about the text and the epistles. You know, press on to win the prize. Feels decidedly different than that slogan. They have it all. He has got it all. It's not, I mean, I can be judgmental about those kinds of things. I can literally look at them and laugh. And there's a feeling of like almost mockery coming up. And I don't say that that's laudable. What's more interesting to me than that, which is not helpful, is that slogan is that as a value, is saying this means that you have a good life. At least in this one, they have be responsible and be a role model. Life is a race. The trouble is that it colors everything. The new life described in chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians is a life that can't be described by this kind of life is a race slogan. There's an interpretive key to all of the rest that follows. All of the reading about immorality and impurity, some of which Jill read for us, and all of the lists that you find in what's coming up in 4, 5, and 6. The interpretive key I've put on the screen there is this. And you can't get to the rest without this. Love as Christ loved. So often religion wants to switch or move quickly to the moral mandates, which they can be good. But in Christian ethics, like how to live, how to live a good life, this is the interpretive key. Always love as Christ loved, as Christ loves. And then he's going to unpack what the implications are in many areas of our life. The Christian life is not about what you can get either materially or spiritually. Though there is spiritual blessing and sometimes material blessing. The Christian life is about how you give yourself away. That's it. You're not going to have the option. I mean, I suppose you could live a life where you just try to get as much as possible and then in the end you be further and further alienated in terms of relationships. But if you're open to the world and certainly open to God's presence, you won't have the choice. You will be giving your life away. And of course, it's much better to give it away to people than to things. That You can't even really do that. That's a kind of psychosis. But sometimes we think, I can get away with not giving my life away. I don't, I don't think that's true. 
See, it's the same thing as saying, love as Christ loved. What did he do for us? What did he do for everyone? Who being equal with God, considered that equality not to be grasped and gave himself, becoming becoming obedient even unto death, death on a cross. And he was then exalted. So from here, in this passage, you can reach back to what, we, what is before in chapters 4, and then to 5, and then to 6. So you're going to get to wives and husbands, children and parents, employees and employers, and all of this talk about the moral code from this interpretive key. Love is Christ loved, and the Christian life is about how you give yourself away. So love is Christ loved. The first sections of the readings, chapter 4, 5, and 6. Don't be driven by selfish appetites, darkened and hardened. Because that's what's going to happen. If you're driven by appetites, you're just going to fall further and further into yourself. If you think it's about getting what makes you feel good, particularly material things, or getting things from other people, or using other people like accessories, that's where some of the sexual immorality comes in, by the way. Don't ever treat somebody in life in any area, including sexuality, as if they are an accessory to your appetite. And this is something that for Christians we should have a much bigger grasp on than to think, well, here's the following five rules about sexuality. It is possible that you might be breaking none of those so-called rules, but still be completely self-focused. Don't treat people like that. There's a word for this, sensuality. It's in the text. Senses are good. Sensuality, the idea that I'm going to live just according to what I feel like all the time, means that I'll hurt other people in the process. Put off the new self, verses 22 and 23. Put off, sorry, put off the old self and put on the new self. There's other images in Scripture that say clothe yourself with Jesus Christ. After the likeness of God, love as Christ loved. The Christian life, please understand this, it's hard to get because religion has done many times a disservice to us. Right and wrong is good to understand in many, many ways. But the Christian faith is not about figuring out what's right and what is wrong. The Christian faith is not about what's figuring out what's right and what is wrong. The Christian life is figuring out how to love as Christ loved. Way higher standard, by the way. And I'll say over and over again, you will do more damage in your life when you're right. How do we love as Christ loved? Well, what did He do with sinful people around Him? He welcomed them. They were astounded that He didn't seem to be judging them like everybody else was. They were attracted to him. The key in all of these words, chapters 4, 5, and 6, is relationship. These ethics, these lists, entirely focus on relationship with other people. And with God, I suppose you could say. But it's enough even to think relationship with others. If the hinge is give yourself away to other people, then that's going to be a relational type of measurement. 
You won't be able to discern it without that. But many of us have grown up with an idea of sin that has to do mostly with just a focus on my own personal behavior. I've done this terrible thing. It's broken some code. I'm not asking you to stop seeking over those kinds of things. I'm asking you to mature in how you consider good and bad, right and wrong, sin and not sin. Listen to the list, verses 25 and following. Put away falsehood. Speak the truth with your neighbor. That would be in a Christian community. But also think about your neighbor in the neighborhood. Speak the truth. Why? Because you should love as Christ loved. You shouldn't be thinking, how can I get something and protect what I have, potentially even at the cost of my neighbor? It might be possible to do that and do nothing wrong according to the moral code. Right? I haven't broken any rule. But you haven't loved. How do you apply this in business? Do you ever hear the term, it's not personal, it's just business? It's one of the worst terms I've ever heard in my life because what it means is, I'd like to do something good and nice, but business, often. Now, I want to always say, I feel like I need to say the other side. This rush that business or corporations are all evil is also something that we ought not to fall into as Christians. Have you been to a place where there's no corporation? We need to mature, grow up. If you're angry, the list is going to say, isn't that great? It doesn't say, don't ever be angry because it knows Scripture, the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ knows you. Now, some of you don't really struggle with anger. Others of you do. But pretty much all of us have times when we're angry. If you're angry, do not sin. What would that mean? Well, it must mean that at times the anger itself is not necessarily sinful or wrong. Well, how could that be? So where does the sin come in? Think of how we're maturing and how we read this. If you're angry, don't sin. What that means is this. In other words, don't cancel the other person out even if you have a dispute. Difficult thing to do, to not dehumanize. If you're angry... Don't sin. Don't hurt one another. Don't give an opportunity to the devil. Let the thief stop stealing. Stealing is wrong. Why? Well, of course, it's a moral code. It's wrong. Ten Commandments. But there's more to it than that. Your talk should build one another up. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. It's interesting. That the Holy Spirit has come to reveal to us the love of God, and there is this grief if we've seen that and then live a different way. Put away wrath and anger and clamor and slander and be kind to one another, and then finally forgive as God forgave you. This is beautiful, beautiful, beautiful stuff. But it has to be lived in relationship. And chapter 5. Chapter 5, you're going to get talk about sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness. There's a note about covetousness there. We'll stop. You know what covetousness, covetousness means? 
Do not covet. Do not be jealous in a sense. It means means you look at somebody else and don't want what they have. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? In fact, it's the opposite thing of the ad. The commercial we watched is, make sure you're coveting. And maybe then you'll get one day to stop. Now here it says, no covetousness. Why? Because if you look at somebody who has more than you, and you see them according to what they have, it's a kind of, it's a way of canceling them out. So-and-so must have no problem. Look at all the stuff they have. You fail to see them as a person. There's, a, there's a, a mandate even for those who have less in how we care for those who have more. Isn't that interesting in the Christian faith? And you'll see it later on in a couple of minutes when we get to other parts of the text. So don't cancel one another out in this way. And then sexual sin. We could make a list now of sexual sin. How can we tell other people what they're doing wrong and say to them, don't? And then I've grown up in a church culture and certainly many of you would say, oh my goodness, it is so much more open and permissive than it used to be. The lines used to be much more clear. But still, I've grown up in a culture, in a church culture, where there's some pretty clear lines. And certain people feel, particularly if they have a certain background or whatever, that somehow they feel kind of outside in terms of how the church would think of them. So some of you met somebody when you were really young, got married, you've had this life, and things have just worked out, and, or for the most part, but whatever, and that's that. And then what if you see somebody else who's been married a couple or a few times or made some decisions that you might think, what do you do there? Sometimes we can have these lines that we think that's what it means by sexual immorality. It means a lot more than that. (laughs) Remember when Jesus said, if you lust after a woman, even if you think, even in your mind, you know, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And so somehow... Growing up as a young man, the idea was if I look at somebody like that, then there is this sinfulness. And what's interesting is that sometimes, and male-female doesn't always work this way, but this is how we've understood it traditionally, there's the idea that then the female becomes this kind of object of temptation. So she'd better watch it because she might generate these feelings in these young men. I hope it means more than that, and it does. Don't treat another person as if they are accessory to your appetite. If my view of anybody else is a view that's guided by lust, why is that sinful? Because lust is bad? Maybe, but there's more to it than that. Because I fail to see that that is a person. And treating her as if you'd better watch it, even from a a religious perspective, has done the same thing from a different angle. Shouldn't be any sexual immorality among you. You shouldn't treat each other like this. No impurity, no covetousness, no foolish talk or crude joking. I'll hit this one again too. Let's judge those now who are filthy. So George Carlin had seven words you can't say on television. We got 700 words you can't say in church. Should I list them for you? No, I won't. 
But the reason, one of the reasons that that was a brilliant comedic bit was that he showed the arbitrary nature of what we've described as filthy. And he offended people in doing so, which always means you kind of have won as a comedian. Do you remember when you played a game as kids? Look up on the balcony. They'll remember this um, more recently. Do you remember when you played a game? It's not really a game. It's a big word for what this is. But you played a game as kids where you found out some swear words in another language. Do you remember that? And so then you said them. I remember, Zori, your son told me the worst Spanish swear word. I still have it in my head. I'm sorry. Forgive me. (laughs) And I thought, that doesn't sound so bad in English. What does that teach you? And what did the kids know? That it's arbitrary. It's not even what words you use. And certainly certain words in our culture can be invested that they're always filthy or something. But Christians should be smarter than that. I have heard, I've told you before, I've heard in the church foyer people cursing one another, destroying one another, and never using a filthy word as we've defined it. What's worse? I just have in my mind, you should hear how I talk to Ken Bell. But anyway... He knows I love him. I think sometimes he might be worried he hasn't said such and such to me lately. And then this walk as children of light, not darkness. Don't get drunk with wine. The idea here is it's not against all alcohol. It's saying, what are you ceding control to? Are you ceding control to things and stuff of this earth? Are you ceding control to the Holy Spirit of God who can be entirely trusted? And encourage one another. and Build one another up. It's such beautiful, beautiful language. And then as we move to close, a few more minutes here, because you want to hear about wives and husbands, don't you? Remember the interpretive key. Love as Christ loved. If you tell me what the Bible says about how wives and husbands should relate without that interpretive key, I'm not that interested. Well, I might be interested, but only to kind of go, right? Wives and husbands, parents and children, and I've said employees and employers, but the original language in the Scripture is slaves and masters. Do you know that in this text, Ephesians, it says, it says, the Bible says. This is the problem with saying it says. You need much more than it says You always need that it says is reflective that the Word is about the Word. What is this about Jesus Christ? Because we can make it say things that are not at all Christ-like. Like, for example, ready for this? Slaves, obey your masters. Can you imagine for a couple of moments how that was used in the American South in the 1800s and before? And you know that there were people who stood, Christian people, Bible in hand, and said, it says. Got to do better than that. Wives and husbands. People like to go to verse 22. Have it? I think it's verse 22 that says, wives, submit to your husbands. Let me pull it up. 
And, and the problem is, in our, this is chapter 5, in our Bibles, things are put in sections. So the wives and husbands portion starts with verse 22. Terrible, terrible error. An enormous error. Yeah, there's a lot more to it. You've got to read the other verses that follow, but the real problem is you've got to read the one verse that is before. Wives, submit to your husbands. What came in verse 21? Do you have your Bible with you? Submit to one another. There is no part of this passage that tells a wife to submit and not a husband. You have to ignore the entire passage before. Submit to one another. Why? Out of reverence to Christ. You've seen His love. Now I'm calling you totally different than so much in the world operates where it's hierarchy. The Christian life is not hierarchy. The Christian life is mutual submission. It's the only way any relationship truly works. Maybe not in business, but yes, in the Christian life. And so I call you to submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Now, what might that look like in a marriage, a husband and a wife? And then he's going to describe it. It's a picture of mutual submission. And when you hear this text say, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. I'm, this happened to me early on, fortunately. Um, early in my marriage, I suppose, or even before, that I feel the Holy Spirit opening my eyes to that text when I love your wife as Christ loved the church. What did Christ do for the church? He submitted himself and gave himself for the church. This is mutual submission. You can't make it any other way. And we have infected at times marriages with a poor interpretation of this text that has harmed both husbands and wives. Because personalities can be different. Strengths can be different. You've got to be very careful in the religious life, the Christian life, of ever pointing at somebody else and saying, you need to do this for me. You need to agree with me because the Bible said such and such. You're on difficult ground there. You might be right, but in this case, there's more to it. And then it moves to children and parents. If you thought it was astounding that wives and husbands could submit to one another, because in this culture at that time, that was not the model. What was the model? Property, ownership. The man owned the woman. And into that culture, this astounding model is spoken. If you're married... Submit to one another. It's, it's almost, it would be almost incomprehensible then. Add the step now, and I'm not talking about discipline and parenting and these kinds of things, guiding. Children and parents. What does it look like to submit to one another in these kinds of relationships? Well, children, and do you ever have this happen to you in your life where you, you know, you're a child and you just kind of don't really think of your parent as a person? And then at some point you realize, oh my goodness, they're a real person and I might be causing them frustration. In other words, you care for them. Children, young and older, your age, if you have, you can think of your parents. 
submit to your parents. Obey them. There's a promise with that. And then parents. And here it says fathers. The original text says fathers. That's because in that culture, that would be where the role of discipline comes from. Other texts, other passages and interpretations say parents. Parents. Again, astounding that you would say this to anybody in this culture at this time. Parents, don't exasperate your kids. Any of us who've been parents know how easy it is at times to exasperate our kids. Submission is going to look different in a children-parent relationship than husband and wife, but the model's still there. And then finally, bond servants and masters, employees and employers. I love the word that the ESV uses here. Employees, you shouldn't just have, it's in the text, I don't have the verse right in front of me. Employees and employers, uh, it's chapter 6, verse 6. Employees or bond servants or slaves, however you want to, obey your earthly masters. Can you imagine? I just, anyway, we talked about that already. Obey them with fear and trembling as you would Christ. But if you can think of employees and employers, and I love this, this um, word structure in verse 6. Don't just obey them with emptiness. Not the way of eye service. You know what that means? Don't just look like you're working when they come by. That's eye service. i got to look busy right now because so-and-so's in the office today. Now, why would, you, why would the text call you as a Christian to live a better life than that? Because you ought to be caring for that person. Thinking of them. And then it says to employers, masters, whatever word you use, stop threatening. Isn't that great? We have a lot of uh, news lately on toxic bosses and such. Um, you heard... This past week, there's been more revelations in the Bill Hybels story, Willow Creek. Isn't it interesting? Like, years ago, Willow Creek was this huge church, and we all joined Willow Creek associations, and, we, and it just has come crumbling. Sexual immorality, and also the fact that it was just toxic in terms of uh, employee-employer. Threats, everything else. Stop threatening. You shouldn't threaten as a Christian. And then finally, the end of the text, of the book. And we're not going to go through it. I just want you to, to draw your attention to it, and you can read it and go through the list. Why would the armor of God text be at the end of this section? Shouldn't it be at the end of some like great spiritual warfare section or something? You know, calling fire down. Or something. It's at the end of a section that says, Children and parents, wives and husbands, employees and employers. And then you get this armor of God stuff. What's the reason? And I would say it to you and I'd hope you know it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. And here's the promise. You are equipped to do it. belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of readiness for service, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, 
sword of the Spirit, praying at all times in the Spirit, you are equipped to live this life. So let's go live this life. Loving as Christ loved. Let's open our minds to a better call than a code. A call to seek to be Christ-like. Let's pray. So guide us, Heavenly Father. Open our eyes and our ears. Forgive us for where we have treated other people as less than people. Forgive us, well this is a tougher one, for how we have judged others. And lead us in the everlasting way. And help us know that we're equipped in you and by you to live this life that we're called to. In Christ's name, amen.